Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. My wife actually joked that she's like, summer salsa, you know what you should do? You should bring salsa and chips up on stage. That's more of the salsa feel I have. But, uh, sorry, things sliding around as I sit. I apologize, I am going to sit this morning. I'm old, and the first thing that goes when you get old is your knees. And so I'm old officially. Um, but welcome this morning to Crosspoint. And ironically, I say I'm not going to dance, but I have a passionate love for music. Growing up, I loved music. It was always impactful. It was always a part of my life. Now, unlike other families, other families did a lot with the creation of music. A lot of singing, piano playing. That wasn't really what I did. I was about consuming. I just loved what other people made. I grew up listening to electronic music, to country, British Invasion, Motown, the synth hits of the 80s. As a teenager, um, I dove more into different kinds of music. So I got into blues and gospel and funk and folk and opera. Pretty much everything but polka. Never really did polka. Um, and of course, being a 90s child, I got into 90s alternative. I love these poetic narratives that were woven throughout the music. These stories, these things that people had to tell through the songs they were weaving and through the music they were making. So one would think that one of my favorite books in the Bible would be the book of Psalms, right. The book of Psalms, of course, being a collection of songs, truth be told, I didn't become a believer until I was in my early 20s, and the book of Psalms was one of my least favorite books in the Bible. Why do we need this dated book of poems that don't even rhyme, because they're not actually written in English? Why do we need these songs that we have Hillsong, and we have Michael W. Smith, and we have all these people putting out these great songs now that speak more to my generation opposed to this old generation? What even is a mascal anyway? Um, and people would tell me that Christ himself quoted the psalm 16 times. Paul quoted 14 different psalms in his writings. And I'd be like, that's great. Jesus said lots of fantastic things too, not just the Psalms. And only 16. It contains the very center of the Bible. I remember one guy telling me this when I was a new believer. He said it contains the center of the Bible and it's so profound. The center of the Bible being Psalm 118 verse 8. It is better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in man. Yes, I agree with that. I fullheartedly agree with that. And if you're a believer, that's kind of self-evident. When you look at how flawed men are, and it wasn't actually until I heard a quote by Billy Graham. I was reading a, a sermon that Billy Graham had done, and he said, the psalmist lived every experience that we live. He was up one day and down the next. He had every kind of thought. Then he would talk to God about it. And that's the flip. That's the magic switch in this. Realizing that when you dig through the book of Psalms, you can find every emotion. You can find every possible thought, and they're all being spoken directly to God. 
Now me, being naive and being a young Christian, emotions are great. I love emotions. I'm a social worker. I work with emotions all day. Um, but there's no story in that. What's the story in that? So there's lots of emotions, no story. Book Psalms, not really for me. Now God, we have a saying in my house that that's when God said ha. Um, we had a Bible study that was meeting our house for a very long time, but we would systematically just go through a book. And we decided to go through the book of Psalms. Ten Psalms a week through the entire book of Psalms. And there was... Going through the book systematically, there were lots of things that pulled out. You can see the themes, you can see overstriking constructs, and they became more vivid. And I was connecting with the material, but it still wasn't connecting to me as a believer. It was still this superficial book that I could learn from, and there are great things in it, but it still wasn't one of my favorites. Until the eighth week, we read the most bizarre, dark, and brooding piece of poetry that I've ever read. It's the kind of poetry that would make my chemical romance take pause. And that's Psalm 88. If you are familiar with it, we are going to get into it this morning. If you have your Bibles, I welcome you to open Psalm 88. And we're going to read through it in its entirety. So Psalm 88, starting at verse 1. O Lord, the God who saves me, Day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors, and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. I know what you're thinking. That's nice light psalm for summer salsa. And I don't know if you caught it, but this one's slightly different than the other psalms. So I'm just going to flip ahead to give you an example. So the end of Psalm 89 says, Praise be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 90 says, And the beauty of the Lord our God is upon us to establish thou through works that our hands hath upon us. Ye, the work of our hands established throughout it. I read the King James there. 91 says, 
with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So see if you can catch, it's subtle, see if you can catch the difference. Back to Psalm 88. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. It's a little different. Did you catch it? The thing that caught me about this psalm that made it unique to me was thinking about the fact that why would this be in here? Every other psalm, I would argue, I'll argue it with you after if you want to come find me, every other psalm ends with hope, with praise, with delight. And here the psalm sits, called the sad psalm, which is like the most understated description of a psalm ever. It sits there telling us that there's something different here. There's something to be found. And all scripture is breathed by God, is ordained by God. All scripture is perfect. So what is the point of this? Well, before we get into that too much, I want to take a step back and I want to think about who wrote this. So at the very beginning of the psalm, before we read verse 1, there's that little preamble. And it says that it's a song and a psalm of the sons of Korah. And that it's written by a guy named He-Man. Now, it's not actually that He-Man. It's not actually He-Man. It's Heman, but it's funner to say He-Man. So it's Heman. If you get that joke, your knees are probably sore too, just for the record. Um, so he was one of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah wrote 11 psalms. He, uh, Haman, I almost messed that up. Haman himself wrote, is specifically credited with writing one, this one. Now, the sons of Korah, we often talk about them being psalmists. They're people that show up in the psalms that wrote the psalms. Um, but they also actually show up in the Old Testament quite a bit. And one of the things we know about the sons of Korah is they're literally the sons of Korah. So Korah being a person who was the son of Caius, who was the son of Levi. Now, Levi, if you remember your Old Testament, Levi is one of the tribes of Israel, and they were set aside to be the priests of Israel. So they weren't given a parcel of land like the other nations were. They were set aside to be the priests, to carry God's word and his practices and his beliefs and his worship forward to the people. Now, Levi had a son, Kaath, and the Kaath's descendants became the Kohathites, and the Kohathites show up in numbers again. Now, if you've read Numbers, it's not the most entertaining book in the Bible. I'm going to get roasted for this later. That's fine. You can come talk to me. Not the most entertaining book in the Bible. But there is this story nestled into Numbers that is shocking. I see some nodding going on. You already know what I'm alluding to. So there's this story in Numbers of all the different tribes of Israel camping separately as they navigate and migrate around the desert. And different groups have camped separately. And the Kohathites camped and actually revoked Moses and rejected God. And the nation was called to separate from them. So they physically actually separated from them and God opens the desert and swallows them whole. And they're no more. Now something that stands out from that. So the Korahites are gone. How do we end up with a son? Well, it actually says that the sons of Korah did not die. That they were the Kohathites that were set apart. And that they maintain and held a place in worship with God. Now, it says the sons of Koath now in writing the Psalms. We don't know for sure whether that's literal descendants of Koath or whether those are people who worked with and developed 
But regardless, these were the people that were still maintaining that worship. They had this direct connection to God, and they had responsibilities for carrying the most holy objects in the tabernacle. And they come up several more times in the Old Testament. Samuel is actually from the line, from the descendants of Kohath, and David has a group that goes with him on his military exploits. And the neat thing about that is when you think about it is that there's this peace, this remnant, this peace that had defied God, that had been saved by God, that came forward to praise God and carry on praising God. And then Haman writes this song. Now it's evident from the song that Haman's life was brutal. He says that he was inflicted from a young age and was close to death his entire life. And he's nearing the end of this life. And I'm going to argue that this psalm holds true to one purpose. There's one eternal truth that we can pull from this psalm. And it's deeply biblical, and it's hugely rooted, so I hope I can unpack it for you. And this fundamental truth of life is life is hard, and sometimes life sucks. I heard an amen. <laughs> it's true. I don't care if you're an infant. Sometimes you're holding a baby back there. Sometimes life for him sucks. He doesn't want to be cold or to be in a dirty diaper or he wants to just be held for the 14th hour in a row. As adults, sometimes your knees hurt and you sit in a chair in front of everyone. Or sometimes you can't walk as far as you used to. Or sometimes you can't hold people for as long as you used to. Or sometimes you can't remember all the details. Or sometimes you forget that name and it's embarrassing. We have those little things, those micro things in our lives that make life hard. And there's those macro things in our lives that made life hard. So I don't know if you guys have heard about it. I heard a chuckle already. But we have this thing we just went through called COVID. We have this macro pressure put on the world that made life hard, regardless of what end of the spectrum and belief and whatever you want to say about COVID, made everyone's life hard. I work in healthcare, hard, sucked. Because sometimes life is hard and sometimes, or life is hard and sometimes life sucks. Now I wanna make two comparisons. I wanna carry this idea of the micro and the macro on. So macro being the larger picture, micro being the smaller picture, I'm gonna start with the macro. And we've been talking about life. The one thing I keep seeing memes for, and I'm dated here so you can, the teenagers can judge me later. One thing I keep seeing memes for is history, or, Everything's gone downhill since 2014. 2014 seems to have been a good year and everything's downhill since. While Harvard actually got a group of scientists together, got a group of historians together, and researched what the worst year in history was. What is the worst year in the entire history of this planet? And that year is 536 AD. Never has life sucked more than 536 AD. Keeping it brief and short, the Roman Empire is falling. It's in complete disarray. It's chaos and war in Euro-Asia and in Europe. The Byzantine Empire just falls. Now you have the rest of Europe in absolute turmoil. Africa, the Nubian Kingdom is coming to power, so there's tribal infighting. That entire continent is at war. So we now covered three and a half continents. They're all at war with each other. We actually don't know what's going on in huge parts of Asia because huge parts of Asia can't actually write. So the Huns aren't writing yet. China's not really putting a lot down yet. Japan gets a brand new emperor because their emperor gets killed. And we know in at least two, we think possibly three volcanoes erupt that year all around the same time. 
plunging the world into darkness. There's records of not seeing the sun for 18 months. Now, what's the problem with not seeing the sun for 18 months? You don't have food. We have worldwide starvation and hunger like we've never seen. We see plagues start to take root. They think this is the start of the bubonic plague way back then in a much micro smaller cosm. We have plagues because one of the problems with people don't get enough nutrition, their bodies get weak. When people's bodies get weak, they get hit with plagues and whole societies get hit with plagues and they get wiped out. This is the world that we find ourselves in in 536 AD. Now this begs the question for me when I was looking at this, so what was the church doing? Because that's post-Jesus. So you want to know what the church was doing? We have, even, we have the writings of evangelical missionaries. And what's interesting is not the missionaries themselves, but other people writing about the missionaries who were at work in that Nubian kingdom rising in Africa, in Wales, Ireland, Scotland. Wales and Scotland and Ireland being the far reaches of the European world at the time. France, Spain, there are missionaries, Christian missionaries, ministering to the Arab princes who were sick with a plague and ministering to their kingdoms. We have a church being built in Tibet. And we have Christians moving in and church teaching the Huns how to read and write. And the writings that come out of the Huns follow this Christian presence. And what I love about this and talking about this is it's not just despite the world's terrible circumstances, but because of the world's terrible circumstances, the church is moving. God is moving. God is working. God is using his church to do these amazing things all over the known world. That's a macro. So when you say life sucks, it's never sucked as hard. That's 536. You can, you can praise God that you're not living then. So that's the macro. I want to take a look at a micro. So micro comparison for this idea of life sucking. When Micah came up, he shared one of his old-timey musicians that he loved. In a first sermon in the Salsa series was Come As You Are. He talked about Nirvana, being a lover of music. I want to bring a Canadian gem to the forefront for the micro example. So growing up in the 90s, I loved a band called Our Lady Peace. Yes. And Our Lady Peace lead singer's name is Rain Media, and he wrote and sang all of their songs. And they have a song called Life. And the song Life has lyrics that say, how many times have you been pushed around? Is anybody there? Does anybody care? How many times have your friends let you down? Is anybody there? Did anybody stare? How many times have your friends let you down? Just open up your heart and open up your mind. And how many times has your faith slipped away? Well, is anybody safe? Does anybody pray? Life is waiting for you. It's all messed up, but we're alive. Life is waiting for you. It's all messed up, but we'll survive. Not a Christian band, not a Christian singer. Does anybody pray? This idea of human suffering has actually been put to musical form forever. And there's just something about music that's always appealed to me. I talked about this before, but that narrative, that idea that we can use poetry and we can use musical interpretations to be relatable and to actually bring forefront our feelings of what's going on for us. Now, there's actually a study. I mentioned I'm a social worker. I work in mental health and I work with teenagers mostly. And there's a group I did on musical appreciation. And honestly, at the end of the day, all I wanted from this group was to kids think about what they're putting in their ears and how it affects their thoughts. 
because the things we listen to actually do impact how we think about the world and the constructs that we find ourselves in. And one of the things that we said for years and years and years in mental health is if you're feeling sad, you should listen to happy things. It'll make you feel better, It'll perk you up, make you feel better, listen to happy stuff. And studies actually say the opposite. The best thing to listen to when you're feeling low is music by people who have sung about horrible experiences because you can relate to it. Because when somebody listens to that, they feel like they're not alone. That's why when we listen to a song and they're like, oh, this person gets me. I get this. I've been there. And I was there. I was the moody teenager who hated my life for honestly no reason, other than it seemed to be cool for my generation to hate themselves and their life. It's dumb. It was pre-emo, for the record. Emo came a little later. I'm that old. We were setting the groundwork up for emo to come. Um, but I was there. My life was messed up. I wasn't happy. I was sad and I was sitting in it. And we can range from that level to Psalm 88, where we're desperate and we're hurting and we're in pain. For people who go to this church, I think of Adria and I think of Shem, where we've seen posts and we've talked about and praying for them. There was a post this week on Realm with Shem and the physical struggles that he's going through with breathing. I wonder how often he's felt like Psalm 88. Where are you, Lord? Why do I feel like that? So this band from my childhood keeps putting out music. No one's buying it but the other 12 people and me. <laughs> it's true. Um, and this band puts out a, a song about 10 years later called All You Did Was Save My Life. Let's see if you can catch what's going on in this song. I'm not dying. All you did was save my life. Pulled me out of that flat line. Put the heartbeat back inside. I'm not dying. All you did was get me three, through. I owe every breath to you. Hurt and soul, unparalyzed. All you did was save my life. I started to come around. The dogs are back in town. I'm not afraid to see. The devil's gone underground. The tightrope's been cut down, and I can finally breathe. You looked at me as you walked in the room like the Red Sea. You split me open. Somehow knew these wings were stolen. I'm not dying. All you did was save my life. So I'm listening to this song in the car with my wife. And she hits me in the arm gently. She's like, whaps me. I'm like, what? And she's like, can you start this again? I think he's saved. So we start listening to the song. And what's interesting is when I dug into this to see what he says, he said, raised capital C Catholic, but it meant nothing. Learned the truth much later. That is literally the only sound bit, quote, thing I can find from Rain about his faith. But what I love is this is the guy who said, does anybody pray? Has anybody's faith slipped? And like the Red Sea, you split me open. And I'm not dying. All you did was save my life. So I'm bringing these two comparisons forward for you to consider. Because life is hard and sometimes it does suck. But I said God said ha. God also sometimes says but. So what I want to leave you with this morning is to challenge that truth. And life is hard and sometimes it sucks, but the first truth is God is always working. Worst year in history. Worst year in history, there's plagues, there's people dying everywhere, and the church is moving, and it's active. They built a church in Tibet. 
Think about how far-reaching that is now. And back then, they didn't have an airplane to cut the distance. They had to climb straight up that mountain themselves. They were working with the Huns and with Arab princes and ministering to their kingdoms in the worst year in history. In life, in the micro sense, rain asked, does anybody pray? And evidently, he continued to search for the truth and found, I would argue found it. And what's interesting is there's no pizzazz to this. There's no book written about his transformation, but you can see, if you look at the lyrics of him and his wife, Chantal Kresiasik, that there's a switch in the lyrics, that all of a sudden faith in God becomes much more stronger themes. And I would argue that his faith is evident by his product. His faith is evident by his fruit. But in Psalm 88, it doesn't look like God's working at all. It looks like he's silent. And I think that's the fault of reading something that wasn't meant to be read in English. So there, in Hebrew, there's a word right at the very beginning in verse 1. In English, he says, O Lord, the God who saves me. That saves me in Hebrew is actually a word called Yahshua. And Yahshua is something that's already saved. So it's the sense of that you've already saved it. So if you put money away for the future, that's Yahshua. You've saved it. It's already been done. And it's been saved for the purposes of prosperity, victory, aid, or health. So this psalmist, Heman, starts off a psalm by recognizing that he has already been saved by his God. That that salvation is already there. Now, the first time this particular word shows up in scripture is in Genesis 49. And Jacob's on his deathbed, and he's talking to his sons and giving them commands. And he says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. I have waited for Yahshua, O God. He's been, waited for, he's been waiting. He's dying. He knows he's dying. He's been waiting for that promise of salvation. And the reality is, if we're talking about the Bible in its entirety, this concept as a concept, not as an individual Hebraic word, comes up in um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God promises salvation, because that serpent's head will be crushed. That's the first prophecy of Christ. And it shows up over and over and over in the New Testament. Samuel uses the word Yeshua in his writings. Every time a judge is raised, every time God appoints a prophet, every time the kingdom falls, to Israel's might, and every time a nation takes it captive, in the good and in the bad, we see God continually working his truth and continually working for the good. And it might not seem that way at the time. It might not seem that way in a world that's been plunged into 18 months of darkness. But God's at work. The psalmist Heman, he cements the psalm and truth of salvation at the very beginning. A truth that reveals the hope he feels is known in God, not only as a savior, but as a savior who will prosper him. So if the first truth is that God is always working, the second truth is life is hard and sometimes life sucks, but God is always listening. A powerful thing about the psalm is Haman wasn't afraid to bear it all. This is unabated, and this is honest, and it's raw. 
And we have this humanistic nature to temper something hard. When we're going to ask a hard question, when we're going to deliver hard news, we do that preamble. And any parent in the room knows the preamble, because that's when the kid comes to you and goes, look, I didn't mean to do this, and it wasn't my fault. It was actually the fault of my cousin, and they started it, and it was all about them. And you're like, just tell me what happened. The house is on fire. You're like, start with that. <laughs> but it's hard to deliver hard news. We want to dampen it. We want to soften it. One of the most powerful things I ever learned as a social worker was to say the word, that sucks. And that's why I'm using it in the sermon. It's a little crass. It's a little brash. But that sucks. Looking at somebody mean like, that sucks. Because you know what? Sometimes you can acknowledge and you can empathize with them. And there are no answers. Because sometimes there actually aren't answers. Sometimes you can't fix things. But God is always listening. The psalmist cemented his psalm in talking about salvation. And salvation really actually is everything. Regardless of what he's going through, he knows his Lord is the Savior. And the amazing thing about salvation, it's only the thing that God can offer. Because you know what? This world, I said life is hard. The world's hard. And sometimes life sucks. Sometimes the world really sucks. But God is this never-changing thing that offers salvation. He's this never-changing being that wants a relationship with you. When everything else falls short, full of empty promises, salvation's eternal. Regardless of worldly accomplishments or how sure we thought our job was when we get laid off, or how strong we thought our finances were when all of a sudden lettuce costs $5. Salvation's eternal. And salvation is eternal, and salvation is a cornerstone of the psalm because salvation is hope. Because the worst thing this world can do is take your life, and I know, because I've accepted Christ as my Savior, and I have a relationship with my God, that if I died tomorrow, then I get to go be with him because I have salvation, and there's hope in that. If I can't afford that lettuce someday, God forbid, and I wither away and die because I didn't have enough food. I have an eternal hope in the salvation of Christ. And hope is the most important thing in the world. Dr. Kurt Richer of Hopkins University in 1950 did a study that we could never replicate today because it harms animals. So trigger warning before I go into this. It's called the rat in the bucket experiment. So he took a, his first batch of rats he took them, he put them in a bucket full of water, and he let them swim around until they drowned. And he wanted to time how long that would take. It took about 15 minutes for all the rats to drown. Okay. Takes a second batch, puts them in a bucket to swim for 10 minutes, pulls them out, dries them off, gives them heat, gives them a period of rest, puts them back in the bucket. Can anybody guess how long they swim for? 45 minutes. It's a terrible guess. <laughs> Any other guesses? So I can judge you too. <laughs> Five minutes. Nope. 60 hours. The last rat drowns after 60 hours. Completely devoid of anything left because he gave them hope. 
The difference between the first batch of rats and the second batch of rats is the second batch of rats got that break and got that hope, and they kept swimming, hoping that they would be pulled out again. This sounds really sadistic. Remember, they're rats, okay? <laughs> they swam for 60 hours until they're completely exhausted, till they have nothing left, till there is suffering and pain and anguish. Because when you have salvation, when you've been promised something, you always have hope. And when you have hope, you can suffer through whatever you're going through. Haman could go through whatever he was going through and suffer whatever he was suffering because there's hope at the end. God is always listening. My last point is life is hard and sometimes it sucks, but God is always ready. Haman wasn't just ready to bear it all. God was willing to take it. So we have this passage in scripture where Haman is laying it all out there, is bearing it all, is being unabated, isn't saying praise God, yay, at the end of it, is being honest, and God is willing to take that and hear it. Crosspoint a few months ago asked for vignettes from different people about different experiences. And my son gave a vignette. So Fitzy's my son. He's adorable. He's does a giant poof of curly hair. Um, and he talked about his anger during COVID. And I can tell you there's nothing scarier than hearing your six-year-old, seven-year-old, tell you that maybe Allah is actually the right God. Because our God's letting COVID happen. And our God took away his school and his friends. And our God took away his grandparents. And our God left him alone. And I'm crying because all I honestly had to offer him at that moment was that sucks. What can I do? Nothing. Literally nothing. There's nothing I can do. I don't have the power, strength, or the wisdom to come up with this. And I went to Megan and we prayed. And we prayed hard. And we're like, this is dumb. We should get him to pray. And he's like, I don't want to talk to him. I'm working through that anger. I'm like, be angry with him. Tell him you're angry. Tell him you're upset. Tell him you're mad at him. Tell him you're frustrated. There was a time in my life before I was saved where I would talk about how angry I was with God and how despondent I was with God. And a friend of mine who was a believer said, it's kind of funny that you're angry with something that you don't think exists. <laughs> yeah. And watching him go through that process of turning it over to God, watching him go through that process of putting his suffering before him, because we can actually be unabated with God because he reserves judgment, because we can bring our worst sufferings to him and have him acknowledge them. And the reality is, Fitzy's suffering is my suffering. There's a reflection in that. There's a truth in that, right? I'm an extroverted person who loves people. My job is to go work with people in distress. And I love it. And God made me for it. And I hate it being isolated and alone. And when we look at this psalm, this sad psalm, 
we can relate to the fact that we've suffered like that before. And maybe not in the exact same way, and maybe not in the exact same extent. But regardless of what suffering we're feeling, that we can bring it to God. And maybe we're not living through the worst year in history. And maybe we're not putting out platinum-selling albums. But God is always ready for our pain, our sorrow, and our anger. Raw and unabated and unfiltered. And he can take it. From my youth, I have been inflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they've surrounded me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me, and the darkness is my closest friend. Because maybe you're Haman this morning, or maybe you know a Haman. You know somebody who's truly suffering. No, I titled this sermon, My Closest Friend. And I would suggest that though Haman says it at the end, I think he knew who his closest friend actually was. Because he believed in a God who was always working. He believed in a God who was always listening. And he believed in a God that was always ready. God's perfect word includes this psalm that is ugly and raw and unfiltered. Because he can take it and he's ready. Because he's always working and he's always listening and he's always ready. Before we pray to close this morning, I'm just going to give us a moment of silence. So I'm going to take this moment, just ask you that if you're willing and if you're safe to do so, you close your eyes and join me this morning in this moment of silence. And then I'll close and that'll be the, the end or for today. Father in heaven, we lift up those that are suffering today, Lord. We think of Haman and the trials and tribulations that he must have went through, God. That he must have lived through the darkness that he saw and the hopelessness that he felt at times, Lord. And those are human feelings. Those aren't things that are removed and distant in the past, God, but they're things that we experience now, that people in our community are experiencing now, that people in our church, God, are experiencing now. Even people that are on our church team, God, are experiencing now. I think specifically of Shem and Adria. I just lift them up to you, Lord. And we know that there's an old idiom that says suffering builds character. But suffering sucks, God. So we just pray that you would put people in their lives that strengthen them and build them up. 
that they would find you, God, and the truth in your salvation and the hope that comes from it, that they wouldn't feel like a rat drowning in a bucket, God, that they would know that there's hope there, that they would understand what that hope means and the hope that it offers them for all eternity, Lord. And for those of us that are stronger or that aren't in a season where we're struggling, God, I pray that you would, be, you would use us as vessels of light, that we bring your light into this world, your salvation, your hope, God. Not a hope of this world, not a fleeting hope, not something that passes easily, but something that's eternal and everlasting and strong, God, that has a strength and a truth to it, Lord. I pray that you would be with us as we go back out into this world that sucks sometimes. And remember that it's only sometimes. That we cling to those people that build us up and give us strength, that encourage us, Lord, that lift us up and bring us closer to you. I thank you, God, for church. I thank you that we can walk into whatever building you're in, God, and when two or more are gathered, you're there. And a bunch of people who have nothing in common that are bizarre and weird can be strengthened under you, God. Because we have you in common, and there's something so communal about that. I pray for the Hamans of the world that are suffering now, God. I pray for all of us that we would strengthen our church, that we'd be a beacon out into this world, and that we'd bring light and your encouragement as we go out into this week. Be with your church, God, and be with your people. Be with those that are suffering and be with those that are in pain, Lord. We ask all these things in your name that you made possible through the death on the cross. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton, and you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.